1: Friday morning, the 19th of August.
2: Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. While it is undoubtedly premature at this stage to crown Liz Truss in the Tory leadership contest, the safe money suggests that when Boris Johnson steps down from office next month, it'll be a case of the king is dead, long live the queen, as this woman assumes the leadership of the Conservative Party and becomes the next British Prime minister.
3: I was brought up in Paisley in Scotland, in Leeds, in Yorkshire. So I guess you could say I'm a child of the union. And I believe that our union is one of the key assets we have as a country. We're not just neighbors, we're family. And I want our family to stay together and never ever to split up. And Northern Ireland is a key part of our fantastic union. And ever since I've been a minister in this government, I've worked on behalf of the people of Northern Ireland. As DEFRA secretary, I've been to the Balmoral show. I've promoted our fantastic farm products here from Northern Ireland around the world. And as trade secretary, struck dozens of new trade deals to benefit the businesses and consumers here in Northern Ireland. And since becoming Foreign Secretary, I have taken on the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol and seek to resolve the issues that we face. Because the fact is that the protocol is undermining the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. It is causing unfairness between the communities in Northern Ireland, and we need to make sure it is fixed for the future of this great part of the United Kingdom.
2: Liz Truss speaking on the hustings in Belfast uh, this week. Music to the ears, perhaps, of Tories and Unionists, generally speaking, but it could be a case of careful for of what you wish for. That's if you listen to the views of John Bruton. The former Taoiseach says this course of action which Liz Truss is promising to enact the legislation which will effectively write off the protocol will in fact be damaging to the Union. Former Taoiseach John Bruton is on the line with us and a very good morning to you Mr Bruton and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning and you have a number of reasons that you say make that case.
4: Yes, um, basically if the protocol is uh, done away with by the United Kingdom uh, the following things will happen first of all uh, the views of a majority in Northern Ireland um, will be rejected by the UK government a majority in Northern Ireland would like the protocol to be changed alright but they do not want it done away with they want the benefits of it so the UK government will be rejecting the views of the people in Northern Ireland and that logically weakens the union between Northern Ireland and the UK because it's rejecting
2: the opinion of the people in Northern Ireland. That's not unusual, though, is it? I mean, they did that when they went ahead with Brexit.
4: Uh, oh, of course, it would compound that, but it remains the case that yeah. this would be a further weakening of the union. Um, secondly, um, the abolition of the protocol uh, would damage very deeply the prosperity that Northern Ireland has enjoyed under the protocol. It's forgotten, but since the protocol, Northern Ireland has been doing much better economically than it was doing before the protocol. Before the protocol, Northern Ireland was near the bottom in terms of performance economically compared to the rest of the United Kingdom, second or third from the bottom. Mm -hmm. Since the protocol, it's been second from the top after London. As an economic performer. Now, doing away with the protocol obviously, will therefore hurt Northern Ireland's economy. And hurting Northern Ireland's economy weakens the union because people in Northern Ireland, if they're contentious and prosperous, will be happy with the status quo, and the status quo is the union uh, with the United Kingdom. So the policy that uh, is advocated here is against the interests of people who want the union, and I think it's important. That uh, this should be pointed out, and I did that uh, on a radio interview in England where the people who need to be persuaded live. Mm.
2: What do they make of that? Uh, I think there's a few of them listening to us uh, across the border this morning.
4: uh, Well, I I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what people think of it. I I, I uh, believe I'm trying to be objective, and it's Mm. important not to be partisan and not to say anything that shows the slightest you know, offence towards people who do, does not agree with one. Mm. And I think objectively the policy that Liz Truss is advocating, which unfortunately is supported by one party that describes itself as unionists in Northern Ireland, that is bad for the union. And um, also I think it, it is important to say that ditching the protocol Will lead to a trade war, mm. a major trade war between okay. the EU and uh, the UK. Now, where is the only direct frontier between the UK and the EU? It's in Northern Ireland. Where will the greatest damage from a trade war, therefore, likely occur in the whole of Europe? Northern Ireland. So again, mm. ditching the trade, ditching the protocol, leading to a trade war will damage the economy of Northern Ireland and will logically weaken the Union.
2: Can you explain to us what a trade war would mean for people living in Northern Ireland? Uh, how would that impact on their daily lives?
4: Well, it, it's very difficult to know because um, the EU, which will, uh, has said it, will retaliate against the UK if the UK breaks an solemn international treaty that it's entered into with the European Union, which is reasonable for the EU to do, it will have various measures that will, will be designed to hurt the UK. Mm. It will be designed to persuade the UK to change its mind by hurting it. It's not a good situation, but it's the only option that they're left with. No, okay. I don't know exactly. Will that feed what into the cost
2: of living, for example? Of course, uh,
4: uh, what, 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 of course. Sure,
2: and I'm, I'm asking to spell it out simply. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, in, in yeah, what well way it, will it, or, or will it make some goods unavailable?
4: I think both. Uh, I mean, you know, are either very costly or unavailable. But any goods that are coming, it's impossible to answer that because nobody knows. Right? That's not yeah. <laughs> One of a small circle in the European Commission, what they have in mind. Uh, so one can't say what sectors it might hit, but anything that's coming from the European Union that is of benefit to Northern Ireland, or anything that's being exported hmm. from Northern Ireland that's into the European Union, is likely to be damaged okay. or made impossible. Can, can I, so can, I mean, businesses, businesses exporting to the European yeah. Union from. Will be hurt. Mm, but, mm. I, mean, I, I can't go into more detail. I don't sure, but say but but, that but, I don't. but
2: can I ask you a, a, about a, a trade war? Because I think people listening to us in Northern Ireland will say that a trade war is like any war. There's two sides, and uh, there'll either be a, a winner or a loser, or, or, or else there'll be uh, losers all around. Uh, but it, it won't just hurt people in Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. And there'll be a lot of concern across Europe. Uh, some of the car manufacturers, for example, will be very concerned about such a war. Oh yeah,
4: yeah. No. I know, and that, that's true. And it will hurt everybody. And of course, the UK it will be expected will retaliate uh, in, in its own way for what the EU does, and that will hurt the EU. It will hurt people in in, in uh, Ireland. Um, but unfortunately, in trade sanctions of any kind, hurt the people who are imposing them, but also hurt the people uh, who are affected by them. So Mm. it's all around damaging. But the unfortunate thing here is that the UK UK Prime Minister-to-be is now pursuing a policy that she knows perfectly well is going to lead to a trade war. Mm. Uh, That's not not been concealed from her. And she's going ahead. And she's doing it in the name of a union with Northern Ireland, which she knows will be damaged Mm. (laughs) Economically, yeah. by the trade war. And uh, so I, I suppose we have something
2: similar already happening with sanctions on Russia and uh, the, the pain that people across Europe are feeling, uh, apart from the pain that the Russians are feeling because of uh, the soaring uh, increase in energy prices and so on.
4: That's a perfect example, Mike.
2: Right. Uh, so it's in nobody's interest, uh, effectively. But you have a, a line in the stand here where unionists are saying, we don't want to be the poor neighbours of Great Britain. We want to be full members of the United Kingdom. This is not a, about trade or prosperity or being impoverished. It's about identity.
4: Well, they are full members of the United Kingdom at the moment, under the protocol, and they're prospering as full members of the United Kingdom under the protocol, under uh, if the protocol is done away with, yes, there should be mm. members of the European... Uh, okay. members of the United Kingdom. Oh, but, but,
2: but can I put it to you, will, Mr. But Bruggen... But they
4: would suffer economically.
2: If, if you were to repeat that all day, or if I were to record you and play it on the radio station all day on a, a, a loop, uh, there's a still a, a cohort that would disagree and say, we are not. We're, 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 we've lost our sovereignty. We've lost our place in the Union.
4: Well, sovereignty is a, a very mystical concept. <laughs> and I, I prefer to talk about things that I can see feel. and if I find that because of a policy my government is pursuing, I'm poorer and I can spend less. That was more likely to influence my thinking than some notion like sovereignty. I don't dismiss it. Yeah. I certainly don't dismiss the strong uh, emotional attachment that uh, unionists in Northern Ireland feel to the United Kingdom. I believe it's entirely sincere. Mm. I have respected it all my political life. I've been indeed criticised in, in the past in my own <laughs> mm. part of Ireland for mm. being supposedly unionist, which I'm not. But I respect unionists. I totally respect unionists. But it, it's in a, in a an attitude of respect for them. for their union.
2: I don't mean to embarrass Pat Rabbit. Uh, He'd probably be disappointed if you were to talk about any election in in the coming years without uh, remembering that quote about what politicians say during uh, elections. We're in the middle of an election campaign now. Is Liz Truss electioneering, do you think, or are you concerned about the position that both both she and her her contender are taking?
4: Oh, unfortunately, I believe she's entirely sincere in what she's saying, and she will do what she's saying.
2: Hmm. Okay, so it does so not... we've
4: got to persuade to change her mind.
2: Okay, um, that, and that doesn't seem plausible, though, does it?
4: Well, I'm doing my best. <laughs> and I'm availing of the opportunity that I'm here in Britain at the moment to speak when I got a chance to a, a British audience. And anybody in Ireland who wants to see the prosperity of Northern Ireland, which I think everybody in Ireland wants should try to persuade people in Britain that the policy that their current leadership is pursuing is bad. Bad for the Union, bad for both islands, bad for everybody. And, you know, it's it, it takes courage to change your mind. And I no doubt Liz Truss has courage, but I think she needs to apply it in this particular case. Okay.
2: Well, it's a pleasure for me as always uh, to get the opportunity to speak to you Mr Bruton, nice to hear you speaking on your local radio station again and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme I'm proud to do so, thank you Thank you indeed, that's former Taoiseach John Bruton
3: Michael, Michael Reed on, on
2: LMFM. The government is about to close the emergency department in Navan, but getting information about how the government intends to go about closing the emergency department in Our ladies' Hospital in Navin has proven to be almost impossible. This programme has been looking for answers to a number of questions over the last couple of months, which are indisputably in the public interest, but... To no avail. We have put questions to the HSE, to the Department of Health, and to the Minister for Health. Our questions have either been blocked or simply ignored. The arms of the state have been thwarting this local radio station from reporting information to you about your local hospital. So we tried another route. We decided if the HSE, the Department of Health, and the Minister for Health will not give us answers, we would try to legally compel them to supply us with information by using the Freedom of Information Act. On the 25th of July, we sought all of the emails sent between the HSE and the Department of Health, and also between the HSE and the Minister for Health relating to the future of the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. We asked to see All the emails from the beginning of November, when we understand the Minister was advised by the HSE that there was a grave risk in not closing the emergency department up to the end of July. We were told the search was too broad, so we narrowed the search to between the 1st of May and the 31st of July this year. 22 documents were discovered. One of those was regarding a response given to LMFM by the Department of Health in July. So it was disclosed to us, but we were already aware of its contents. The remaining 21 emails are the correspondence that took place over the three-month period between the HSE, the Department of Health and the Minister for Health. Our Freedom of Information request shows how the CEO of the HSE, Paul Reid, wrote to Robert Watt, the Secretary-General of the Department of Health, about Nabin Hospital, on Tuesday, the 21st of June. Watt did not respond to Reid. That Saturday, Paul Reid took the very unusual step of stating in a radio interview that the emergency department will close and that it would be a mistake for the Minister to use his powers under Section 10 of the Health Act to direct the Health Service Executive to call a halt to its plans. That was despite the Minister already saying that the decision had been put on hold. That interview was on Saturday. Reed received an email from Watt on the Monday and, as you know, resigned shortly afterwards. So, what is said in these emails? Well, we don't actually know. In fact, we do not know what it says in any of the 21 emails that we sought to be released to us because our Freedom of Information request has been refused. The reason for the refusal, we are told, is that the granting of the request would be contrary to the public interest. We are also told that if we were given access to these documents, it could impair a future decision. Make of that what you will, but we believe our Freedom of Information request was objected to on the grounds that it is in your interest to close the emergency department, whether you think so or not, and that if LMFM was to be given these documents, the reaction could be so strong that it could actually prevent the closure of the emergency department. And that is not in your interest, whether you think so or not. Let's discuss this with uh, Minister for European Affairs, local Fianna Fáil TD, Thomas Byrne, and local Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke. Good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Minister Byrne, what do you make of this?
5: Well, a, a number of things. First, I think you're misreading the, 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 the reason for the decision. I mean, the reason the decision wasn't that it wasn't in, in public interest. The reason was that it was part of the deliberative process that you can't release documents while a decision is being considered. And then, if they say that that's the case, then they have to see it in the public interest. Now, that decision has no political involvement whatsoever it's highly likely that politicians within the department wouldn't even know that you could put in a freedom of information request it's made by civil servants you have every right now to seek an internal review of that decision within the department and you have the right to appeal to the information commissioner i would strongly encourage you to do that because that's absolutely within your rights and one person's view of whether this should be released in this particular context could be different, and in, in, in the Information Commissioner could take a completely different view. So, I mean, I think if, if you, if you're intra, you want this documentation to be released. I think you should pursue that. I mean, that, that's your entitlement. But there's no political involvement or this, you know, in this process of freedom of information whatsoever. Um, and in terms of while decisions are being considered or being made, for example, the budget, like you won't be able to FOI anything related to the budget until after the budget. All of those documents, I would imagine, that that are listed. And in fairness to they've listed everything there. And in fairness, you've, you've raised very strong interest in terms of dates and all of that. That's fair enough. Absolutely, no doubt they will be they will be released at some particular point. It may well be the Information Commissioner will say, "No, the official in the department was wrong, and I think they should be released now." So that that that. But that's a matter for them. And there's no politician can say that that should happen or that should not happen.
2: Darren O'Rourke, what do you make of it?
5: Well, I think Michael, um, there there is a pattern in absolutely everything that is surrounding uh, this process in relation to the closure of NAVIN a and A&E. Um, The Freedom of Information Act is an act, and um, uh, Thomas Bourne is correct to say that it's it's often a, a great source of frustration for people who try to. Uh, to, to use it and, and there, there, there is discretion there and there is leave to appeal. But I, I have to say there has been a very clear pattern in relation to this whole process. And it's been a pattern of um, secrecy, of uh, of excluding the media and opposition and not excluding the government, including the government representatives in uh, to information. And, and, and I, I always think in terms of politics, information is power, knowledge is power and, and, and that's a simple statement of fact and the media the forms of yourselves and the political opposition have been excluded from information, whether that be in terms of excluded from meetings that have happened uh, with, with local re- representatives and, and opposition not included, whether it's been an, uh, excluded from uh, the, the, the development and uh, access to the draft terms of reference of the of the review, whether it's exclusion, exclusion from your freedom of information request and, and, and correspondence that, that that's been withheld, and I think that pattern is deliberate. And I think it's deliberate um, because the the, the, the the government and the HSE do not want uh, the the general public or the political opposition or the media, but most importantly, the general public to have access to the absolute detail that the government and the HSE have because there's some a, a clear ask on behalf of the people of County Mead, as I understand this and that is to ask the question of what would it take to bring NAV and A&E up to a, a safe standard and the HSE and uh, with the government are deliberately Uh, refusing to ask that question. And that, to me, says that there is a degree of choreography here. And I think that degree of choreography has played out in a number of ways. You know, don't forget there was a denial from the 13th of June that the A&E would be closing at all. Uh, there was language used that said the A&E wouldn't be closing. Um, there was, you know, a, 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 a real, um, you know, there was there was access to information uh, by government uh, in terms of the terms of reference, in terms of, you know, we, we went in on the 13th of June and, um, you know, in, in my opinion, there was a performance put on by, by uh, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs in County Mead because they had had a series of meetings. Uh, they had access to information, they had met with the Our Lady of Lourdes um, ED consultants, for example, Helen McEntee did, with, with the Minister, had access to information that, that uh, w- w- certainly I wasn't aware of at all, and, and to, in, in my is opinion, the, is this an element of, of choreography. Is
2: this information uh, as sensitive, do you think, as uh, the kind of information uh, that would be in departments in the run-up to uh, a budget?
5: Well, I, I don't think it is and and, and there is a, a leave to a appeal there michael and I and I mm. do I, I do recognize that uh, this you know they they are uh, correspondences which are informing uh, a deliberative process or a, a um advice and a decision making process and that decision hasn't yet been made um but uh, to be perfectly frank I don't feel we have the, the fullest of disclosure from the HSE. Um, the, maybe their interpretation of this Freedom of Information Act request is is the right one. Maybe it's it's not. But regardless, I feel that the HSE have been withholding information. And more importantly, to you know, to Thomas Bourne and to to Helen McEntee and to Damian English. They have been withholding information from the people in county Mead. They have had meetings that we have that, that others have been excluded from They, they, they have information that we don 't have information to um, for for example the, the draft terms of reference, for example meetings with 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 e d consultants meetings with the minister meetings with others and and I think that's you know there 's an element of um, choreography and withholding information and you know, uh, um, I think that's that's not at all helpful, Minister.
2: It's, it's Minister, do you believe uh, that in order for this request to have been refused, that somebody in the HSE or the Department, over the course of the last four weeks, objected to it being released?
5: Oh, that's 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 complete nonsense, and Michael, it's very unfair. On this. well, I'm just asking in, you a very straightforward no, no, question. No, I just there's a there's a named person, on uh, yes. made that decision who made that decision and it's very unfair and Hormife and there to be with all this stuff with seeks. That person makes a decision. They've probably no involvement in, in Navin hospital whatsoever. They make a freedom of information decision mm. in the department. By the way, you can go to the HSE and make the same request on their side. And maybe somebody in the HSE for the documents that they have, the emails they send, may take a different decision. But a named civil servant, usually fairly junior actually, makes these decisions. And you can appeal it. So I think we just need to just step away from this. There's a named person there who made this decision. probably going okay. to do with any of this. And it's not part of some conspiracy or cover-up. And it's just doing their job, Michael. Okay. And you might disagree with that. Or maybe the Freedom of Information Commissioner will disagree with that if you appeal it. Okay. So it's very straightforward. I
2: of accept of your answer, but out. I mean, uh, you know... The thing to-
5: is, Darren O'Rourke goes on about secret meetings. I mean, Helen McIntyre and Stephen Donnelly met the consultants of the lawyers. They want to meet the government. I mean, if the government didn't meet them, I think there'd be a problem. I why didn't, didn't you disclose that on the 13th of June, though? But why wasn't that disclosed on the 13th of June? But, was why was why the media
2: not invited to that meeting on the 13th of June when, before the 13th of June, you had told us, minister that it was your intention, it was Shane Castle's intention to have the media at that meeting?
5: It was a separate, as I understand it, it was a separate meeting
2: immediately after... No, but before that meeting, you suggested, you, I, you said that you, had, uh, you would be insisting, uh, uh, along with Shane Castles that the media would be at that meeting.
5: I did, and... What i was told was when i when i arrived it was a separate briefing from the media afterwards i don't know whether you were there or who was there
2: you know i had COVID at the time so i wasn't okay, able to there be was, there but but there but, 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 but 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 what i what i understand was that people. but what i understand was that the the media were invited to a, a media briefing but were are not a, allowed to record that meeting
5: um, you'll have to take that with the hfc i know. if i wish the whole thing was recorded that so people could see everything that was being done that's, that's my view. And
2: but but this, this this is the question. This, this is the ultimate question as to why we are where we are today. Why is a, a media outlet looking for information about the local hospital, a local radio station looking for information about the local hospital, which is so important to so many people that 7,000 people take to the streets to protest about the closure of the emergency department. And the reason that we're putting in freedom of information requests is because we can't get any information because the minister won't speak to the local media. Uh, the, the HSC won't speak to the local media. Uh, and the Department of Health has been treating local media with contempt.
5: Well, I mean, that's all I can say is I'm a talk to daughter, messenger of the people. I have come on your radio any time you've asked me about this particular issue unless I'm really not available. And You know, you, you ask me short notice for this. I have no problem answering any questions, giving any information that I have. As soon as I determine the reference, for this review i gave them to you because i felt this that's my job as a messenger of the people to give the information to the public and i think the public should have as much information as possible but on a freedom of information request we nobody in politics has any role in deciding i mean you didn't ask a series of questions there you asked really for the file and you may well be entitled to that. that's not matter for me um and at some point there's no doubt that those documents will be released at some point uh, that is absolutely the case um, but even Sinn Fein put forward a freedom of information amendment bill, I think late last year. It didn't change this particular provision. Uh, this is the same in governments all over the world, um, and I think whatever questions you have uh, should be answered. I mean, the big questions that you've had and this programme has had around capacity, around the access, the GP access in Avon Hospital, what would be there in Avon Hospital, um, the review that's ongoing at the moment, which includes all of the senior clinicians, GPs, ambulance service. Um, all of these issues, all of these stakeholders that have been really to the forefront in, in, in the discussions and the debate are looking at all of the issues that all of us have raised, including opposition. There's no exclusion. Um, and it's open, by the way, to Darren to write to the, to the review group as well. Um, and there's nothing stopping him doing that. And I'm hoping that the answers that, by the way, I haven't got either about what capacity is at other hospitals. There were questions that I asked at that meeting and uh, the 13th of June I'm hoping that we will get those answers now from this particular review group uh, and I think all of these doctors sitting around the table some of whom have come on the radio actively supporting this saying it's in the best interest of patients others as we know have said look there's a problem with capacity at other hospitals we need to get to the bottom of this and get all the answers and I'm not sure that we'll get all these answers until this review group reports and I think, I think, that's, I think that's the reality of the situation and that's why Minister for Health I think has been very very forward thinking mm. really and not simply letting this go ahead.
2: but So, so there's no point in asking them. questions? No, no, no. You well, know, you've just said That's we won't fine. get the answers until the decision has been made, yeah. and the decision I mean, is a foregone conclusion, answers, which is to close the emergency but department.
5: But I'm not saying you won't get the answers, or I'm not I'm certainly not saying that people wouldn't want to give you the answers, but I asked these questions myself hmm. at the meeting on the 13th of June, and the answers that I would give it were not
2: satisfied.
5: Hmm. Um, but
2: I, I think you said, Minister, that you probably won't get a lot of the answers until the review is concluded.
5: Well... That in that they're not there,
2: and the decision has been made. When I asked
5: about, ask about capacity at the lure. when I asked about capacity at the that June, I mean, there really wasn't that. An answer. The answer was something along the lines of, "Oh, we've we've agreed in principle," and I'm like, that's not really good enough. So, so this is what the review group is actually to tie up all these things that have been asked. The ambulance sure. service in the forefront. What would GP referral mean for people who can't get GPs? Well, these are really serious issues that mm. everybody across the board has been, Yeah, but, but opposition. Or but that,
2: that's that's the point. That those, the questions, those questions those questions will be answered, authority. and when we get the answers, that will be the means for closing the emergency no, department.
5: No, but the, the point is that the minister. No, and
2: that's the, the point. That's the point for government. our that's the point for our audience.
5: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But the minister and the government haven't got the answers to those questions. Okay. That's why the minister said but when, has the, when,
2: when, when the minister and the government get those answers, that Maybe will.
5: We won't get satisfactory answers. I don't know. I thought we were going to get satisfactory factory answers
2: on the 13th of june and we didn't okay darren
5: o'rourke yeah i think look it's um there there is and i'll go back to that point of, of choreography there is very significant choreography here from from government and i believe from 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 the hse and um, there, you know the, the meeting we had on the 13th of june um it, you know in light of the information that was withheld in light of the amount of meetings that were going on internally between government deputies between the HSE between uh, consultants as 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 uh, Our Lady of Lourdes um, really begs the question of what was happening at those meetings, what questions were being asked there why did we come to the thirteenth of June um, with one arm as long as the other with with these range of questions why weren 't they answered before, if there was need for review, why didn 't this happen? Back last November, like it seems uh, mm. very straightforward to me. And and really, the main question I have in all of this is, how have we ended up in a, in a position where we we have a review that specifically excludes um, the prospect of keeping the Ane the and Navan open? Um, so, the minister is under pressure uh, within the HSE to to close the Ane. He's under some political pressure from. The people of County Meath and the political opposition to to keep it open. And in the meantime, he's dithering along. And and there are acknowledged safety risks. Like we know that we know the outcome of the of the review. We know it already. It will be a wish list of what's needed in terms of the care services. T- t-
2: in t- terms t- t- of talk TV a little stuff. bit more about the acknowledged safety risks, um, because as you say, uh, we've been told patient outcomes could be. F- much per than you would expect if they were treated elsewhere in fact it could lead to an unnecessary death and that's information that was given to the minister we understand last november which is why we asked for uh, the documents going back to november but what we discovered uh, in the list of documents because the 21 emails are listed who sent who was writing to who in other words uh, uh, is that paul reed wrote to Robert Watt on the 21st of June a Tuesday went on the radio on the Saturday said the ED was going to close in Navan, despite the minister saying it wouldn't and then got an email on the Monday from the top civil servant in the Department of Health Uh, Do you think that the reason for Paul Reid's resignation lies within those emails?
5: Well I have to I I don't know uh, is is a straight answer but I have to say in terms of the, the timeline there is a, a real coincidence there and I, I certainly think uh, yourselves and others will pursue that um, uh, in light of the fact that we now have a clear uh, chronology of, of emails uh, being sent and not being responded to, uh, a public statement and, and, uh, um, and then a subsequent re- resignation and uh, subsequent emails. So I, so I think it, it really is in the, the public interest uh, to to get to get sight of of, of those emails and and I, I hope that's something that can happen um, you know if, if yourselves are putting in an appeal uh, maybe sooner rather than later but certainly later if if, if needs be and I think there's mm. there's real suspicion there and, and I think you know in terms of this process and and okay. ensuring transparency and accountability um, that we do need to see that
2: minister minister Byrne just to conclude isn't it um reasonable to ask if the HSE's CEO resigned, one of the most important jobs in the country, if Paul Reid resigned from that job because he was usurped by either the Secretary General of the Department of Health or the Minister for Health or both?
5: Well I think that's, that's a question that was asked at the time uh, in the media um, so that, that, uh, there's, there's no doubt people Okay,
2: well, okay, you let know, me ask you the question the same way. Do you want to know the answer?
5: Well, I mean, I think, I think what what you've got there, you have a list of documents and you've clearly connected dates very well and, you know, around that time and I think that is of public interest on that side of it. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that they would be in the public domain at some point um, and at the moment they just kept them out of it because deliberations going on at the government, but all I can say is when the, you know, when yeah. emergency surgery came out at Daisy Hill, it was Sinn Féin Minister John O'Dowd who said politicians to stay calm and listen to the medical experts. And we've one, one thing said by Sinn Féin, in, uh, you know, just in the na- two counties up, and another thing said uh, by Sinn Féin, uh, south of the border. And that's just typical in this particular issue. What we're concerned about, it's nonsense. Safety. What we're concerned about is uh, that there's capacity at all our hospitals, that Navin Hospital is invested in, um, that there, is more, there are more and more people going to be using Navin Hospital, there's more and more activity going to be carried out at Navin Hospital, and that each hospital in the area that serves people, and I'd, by the way, I'd love to see Daisy Hospital part of that network as well, Daisy Hill Hospital, I'd love to see that part of the Northeastern Hospital Network as well, as part of mm-hmm. All Ireland Health Strategy, that each hospital
2: does what it's best at. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thank you both very much indeed uh, for your time on the programme uh, this morning. Minister Thomas Byrne who's a local Fianna Fáil TD and local Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke. Michael
3: Reid on
2: LMFM. Now to some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Mary in touch with us saying she doesn't understand why the Department of of health is being so problematic about releasing information to the show. Uh, she said she thought the whole point of the Freedom of Information Act was so that people could access this kind of information and they'd be able to get answers to any concerns they had. but. That's obviously not the case. Uh, Well, we'll see in time, I suppose, Mary, because as uh, the TDs were saying in the programme, there is an appeal process and I'm sure we'll enter into that. Uh, Tommy says uh, the minister is a thundering disgrace over his handling of uh, the Nabin Hospital situation. This is Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health. He's been ducking and diving, Tommy says, for months on this topic and he continues to run for the hills rather than do his job and face the people of County Meath and address the concerns of the people of County Meath. Tommy also says that the people are not going to forget how he has behaved or how his coalition colleagues have allowed him to avoid this important issue and they will suffer for it in the next election. Thank you indeed, uh, Tommy, uh, for your call to the programme. Uh, we obviously have a- an open invitation uh, for the Minister to come on to the programme. Uh, And we've made it known to his uh, officials that it's an open invitation. So if uh, the minister wants to respond to that, he's more than welcome. Tom Navin says, it must be very sensitive information, Michael, if they're not releasing the details. What's the point of FOIs if they can just say no? Uh, Thanks uh, for that, uh, Tom. Well, I presume there's good reason for it. Uh, It's not in the interest of uh, people to learn what's in those emails. It's not in the public interest uh, and uh, it could impact or impair a, a decision that hasn't been made yet. That's what it says in the documents. Uh, John Indrada in touch. He, he says, if there's nothing to hide, then why is the Minister for Health not speaking to LMFM? Why is the HSE not responding to questions? I, I've been listening to your coverage about Navin Hospital since the story about the proposed closure broke. And quite frankly, you've been getting the complete runaround. Why was the Terms of Reference not made available when the review had already started? Why were you not given the names of who was on the review board until this week? It's all very peculiar. Uh, thanks, John Andrade. Just to mention, um, we still haven't been sent the Terms of Reference. Um, our requests, I don't know how many weeks ago that was, four weeks ago, I think. Um, it uh, was never responded to. We, we, we've never been given the terms of reference. Um, we got them from a, a local politician. Um, I don't think they've been published either. Um, if you can find them, let me know. Uh, Brendan in touch with us on Facebook. He says, I told everyone that the emergency department in Avon was closing months ago and nobody would believe me because of what I believe is false information that the government is filling people with. LMFM should be given the information to read out. wonder what the government is hiding. Uh, Eugene on Facebook as well he says the truth hurts and it's not in the interest of the government to make this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. information available thanks uh, eugene uh, for that um we'd anita mccann on facebook as well and she says michael reed tried his best to highlight the closure of the loud hospital lies and false promises is all we were given the hospital doors didn't close they just changed the services today it's a step down and clinics and a and with limited services navin will be no different Uh, Hi Anita, Um, you uh, were a regular um, uh, contributor on the programme back then, um, a long time ago, uh, and uh, there was all sorts of things said, but uh, of course uh, the emergency department in the Louth County did close remember as well um, Brandon Hughes says I told everyone it was closing a month ago um, and he, he says uh, he wonders why uh, some of the government TDs didn't go to the protests Tony Burns says nothing but cover ups with this government anyway <laughs> Tony I think you're over the top there this is an open transparent way of communicating a decision that's very important to people it's not a cover up It's open and it's transparent and there's this process of engaging with the community and the stakeholders. Uh, Very, very important. Uh, Jay Nolan says, what happened to the freedom of information? Thanks uh, for that, Jay. Again, on Facebook. Uh, Margaret in touch asking if uh, this is a text message from Margaret. Margaret says, can the government and the HSC say that other hospitals... um, me patients are to be sent to oh, other hospitals that patients are to be sent to from Mead are 100% safe uh, and that you won't have to wait hours for an ambulance to arrive or to be left languishing for hours on trolleys when you get there. They're the ones who say Our Lady's Hospital is unsafe. So let's hear how safe the other hospitals really are, says Margaret. Uh, uh, John, I think it is, uh, saying, Michael, in reference uh, to the hospital in Navan. money can be found as if it, if it was in Dublin if it was a hospital in Dublin this wouldn't be happening uh, he says I've heard about a, a major waste of funds uh, as uh, he sees it in Fairview at the moment it, it's a cycle lane it's costing 62 million euro a cycle combust lane and making a road one way a small portion of that money would fix the hospital in Navan. Uh, Mark Power in Navin says, good morning, Michael. Deputy O'Rourke never once recognised the fact that the HSE had a date for closing Navin A&D at the end of June, the 31st of June, but the Minister for Health intervened and stopped it. Political point scoring will not keep Navin A&D open. All County Mead elected reps need to be working together to keep Navin A&D open. An investment needs to be put into the hospital, says Mark Power, in his message to us. Thank you indeed. The thing is, though, Mark, and I've heard it said, um, if you invest in the hospital, what do you do with the money? Do you employ consultants? Uh, because I think Darren O'Rourke has been arguing that you would need to employ about uh, five consultants. And I've heard it said, who would apply? Who would want to work at Avon? you just won't get the people. Uh, It's impossible to get consultants. At the same time, uh, I'm reading today that up to 50 new hospital consultants are to be appointed to emergency departments around the country in the coming months in a fresh effort to relieve blockages and cut rally numbers. Uh, Paul Cullen reporting that in the Irish Times this morning. 50 consultants around the country to emergency departments. So uh, maybe you're right, Mark. Uh, Maybe it is possible. Deirdre and Kells says that the people of County Meath need the hospital in Navan, And she says it's very strange that nobody is able to answer the questions from LMFM radio who are looking for answers uh, doing great work thank you uh, Deirdre for that and all the kind comments uh, that uh, came with your message as well thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today and if you haven't been in touch with us as yet and you do want to have your say on this or something else for that matter we'd love to hear from you
3: michael, michael
2: reed on LMFM uh, we've been told to expect a significant increase in welfare rates in the upcoming budget on the other hand, it's being reported that that might not uh, apply to everyone who receives welfare. Indeed, it appears as though there's a dispute in government about the unemployed and that Fine Gael don't want job seekers' payments to increase.
7: If you're going to increase core social welfare rates, you're actually encouraging people to say, you know what, at, a, at around this €35,000, I'm actually better off financially opting into the social protection system. The main reason for that is you lose access to social and affordable housing in the cities at an income of 35,000 euro. Uh, And in uh, extra urban areas around County Loud, you lose that at 30,000. And then in the country, you lose that at 25,000. Now, that's a very, very significant punishment for earning extra money. That's, that's That that on its own has to be looked at.
2: Right, so that's Neil MacDonald of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association speaking to me. Yes, they concerned, he said, that people would drop out of the workforce. There
7: are people who, for good financial reasons, deliberately drop out of the workforce if social protection rates increase. So we have to be very careful how much we increase them by now.
2: OK, but the cost of living is through the roof Uh, and uh, the proposal seems to be for 15 or or 20 euro. Let's hear what ISME think about that proposal. Okay. Uh, Would you be opposed to increases in the region of 15 or 20 euro?
7: Well, look, we are seeing a 9% inflation rate at the moment. So, that's sort of within the margin of error for there, but our, our preference would be to target those who are on the 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 far more means-tested ones, you know, such Mm -hmm. as the medical card or such as the fuel allowance. But we know that core social uh, welfare rates are going to have to go up we certainly wouldn't want them to go up by more than that, Michael.
2: Neil Macdonald Is me. Let's speak uh, to Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD. Uh, a very good morning to you, Paul Murphy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I suppose we heard some of uh, the reasons for not increasing welfare rates. Uh, you wouldn't agree, though?
8: I wouldn't. Um, good morning, and thanks for having me on. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking here about some of the... People on the lowest incomes in this country, um, who are suffering, you know, very a big majority of them will be suffering from energy poverty. Will be suffering from various forms of deprivation, um, and with inflation running as close to ten percent, if if these people don't get an increase in their fixed payments, if as Pinegal is reported as uh, pushing for, it, there is a freeze in Job Seekers Allowance. Then effectively you are cutting these people's incomes at a time of a major cost of living crisis, and you're condemning them to even deeper deprivation. I mean, these rates are already significantly below the poverty line, and really you're saying to these people, you won't be able to afford to heat your house, you won't be able to afford to buy quality food for your family. And um, you know, it's 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 quite a horrendous position uh, to take. And. In a way, as bad as that is the logic for it, which is that, well, we need to incentivize people to go out to work for low wages, as opposed to seeing that workers also need a pay rise at a time when inflation is running at
2: 10%. Okay, but would it not incentivize people to go and get a, a job? There's full employment. People can't get workers.
8: But if, if you look at the unemployment rate, I mean, it's been dropping Continually since the end of the COVID restrictions, four point two percent.
2: It's one it, of the lowest rates ever. Thirty percent. Thirty percent of businesses uh, say their biggest concern going forward is getting staff. And uh, the Irish Independent today is reporting that ninety percent of businesses in hospitality and tourism can't get staff.
8: But the, the majority of that four point two percent, and it's it continues to go down. Majority of those people are people who are you know, temporarily, short-term, unemployed. They lost one job for some reason. They're Mm. looking for another job because, like, the vast majority of people, they want to have a job, they need to have a job to be able to feed their families, Mm. have the lifestyle that they want to have, and they're temporarily on unemployment yeah. assistance.
2: And, and that's why you would say 4.2% is full employment, uh, because there's people who are in between jobs or exactly uh, whatever it is uh, um, that's happening in their lives. Um, so you're always going to have a, a, a certain amount of people who are unemployed. Uh, but what about the argument that there's people who just won't work? Uh, and that must apply to the 15,000 people who are on the live register for 10 years or more.
8: I mean, the problem with that argument is that, um, and obviously I, I, can't, I can't say there's nobody like that, right? We, I don't know all the people in the country. I can't say there's nobody like that. But it is the case that to be on Job Seekers Allowance, you have to be available for work. You have to prove you're available for work. They can compel you to do various courses, to go on the equivalent of whatever they call JobBridge these days, workplace experience uh, programs or something like that. Um, they compel you to deal with these various companies. Tech or Tourist NUA mm. and they can sanction you if you don't take jobs or courses that you are um, you know, asked to avail of mm. so it's, it's just this image that there's you know, huge numbers of people sitting around doing nothing because they're better off on the dole, it, it isn't backed well, there's Well 15, the
2: there's 15,000 around the dole 10 years or more I mean that's just a matter of fact
8: Yes, and that's a small minority of those, the total, the four points, whatever uh, percent of people. Well, absolutely, Um,
2: 190,000, I think Mm -hmm. uh, that amounts to. So it's only 15,000 out of 190,000 who are on the dole 10 years or or, or more. I'm sure uh, if you come back in time, you'll find that there's a lot of people on the dole for a year or more, and Mm -hmm. so on all the way up. But 15,000 on the dole for 10 years or more, you'd have to assume uh, that they can't work or won't work, so that they either should be penalized if they won't work or if they can't work, they should be classified differently?
8: Uh, it, it may be the case that they should be classified differently. That's that's definitely uh, possible. And um, they may in reality have a disability that hasn't been recognized as such and are therefore stuck in this situation. Um, they All of them would have to engage regularly with the intrio offices where they have to explain what jobs they've applied for, um, what courses they've done, all of those things. All these people are dealt with regularly by Intrio. They don't get a situation where they can just sit at home and do nothing. Some of them may be on penalty rates already. They may have had their dole uh, reduced even further below the poverty line. Um, but then we also have to think: okay, this is this conversation of the 200,000 people. But and, and let's say you've got you've identified 15,000 who are under for, mm. for 10 years or more. Mm. But the the approach that Senegal is talking about in terms of freezing payments, which affects I means there a real term cut in income. Hmm. That's for all of those people, including the people who are you know temporarily unemployed, three or four months between uh, jobs or looking for for work. And that is, you know, would have an incredibly cruel impact hmm. in our society. Yeah, You're not you talking mean, you about you a big amount of money here. Oh,
2: I know. And you might have worked for thirty years, be out of work for a couple of months. I, mean, I suppose we've all been through it at some stage.
8: It, it, exactly, um, and. The answer in terms of for workers, I mean, we need to see higher wages mm. in this country. And um, so profits are very, very high in this country. Profits are high now worldwide. It is the leading factor in the inflation that we're seeing. Big profit making mm. by the big food companies, by the oil and gas companies, mm. by the electricity companies. And mm. um, profits have tripled over the past 12 years mm. in this country. And um, But wages have been mostly stagnant. They're now r- rising but slowly and significantly more slowly than inflation. So, in effect, they're declining. Mm-hmm. Um, and one in five workers are living in, in low pay. So, okay. actually, a bit of pressure on employers to increase wages, that would be no bad thing.
4: Yeah, uh,
2: I think Philip Ryan uh, made the Fine Gael argument, if you like, very well, uh, writing about it in the Irish Independent yesterday. Uh, and he said that, the Finnegale constituency, those people, that middle class, middle income earner who vote Finnegale, might be saying, uh, "Why am I finding it so difficult to cope?" when you're giving 15 euro to these layabouts.
8: Exactly. I think that's the political logic that they are uh, going for. This is more of the kind of those who get out of bed early, hmm. dog whistling type of stuff. That's what it is. But what I would say to those people, um, I mean, you know, let's say, let's say a uh, a middle income worker on €50,000 a year will be struggling right now in terms of the cost of living crisis, no question. But they're, the people responsible for that crisis are not the people who are in incomes even lower than them, who are struggling even more than they are. It's it's those who are making the big, big profits. Um, it's the electricity companies, which have all announced record profits at the same time as announcing record numbers of price increases. It's the oil and gas companies, which have more than doubled their profits quarter on year on year for the first quarter it looks like the second quarter will be even even higher that's the problem and Fine Gael would prefer that you kick down as opposed to look upwards and look at the, the big profits being made by the developers by the big corporate uh, landlords and actually
2: tackling those issues. Okay, well, I suppose that's uh, one of uh, the reasons uh, that Leo Radker has been arguing for the 30% tax ban, but he's also been saying uh, that lower-paid workers uh, also need to be helped out uh, as well. Uh, Can I ask you about uh, another minister, Minister of State at least, Junior Minister Robert Troy? Uh, He's been doing a a lot of explaining. Has his explanations been to your satisfaction?
8: No, I mean, what he has now done is just a to extensive breaches of the ethics legislation. By my count, there's at least nine. So there's four non-declarations of property that should be in the register of members' interest. There's three non-declarations of directorships that should be in the, members', uh, in the register of members' interest, And there's two contracts that he has with Westmead County Council to provide his homes a long-term lease to the council to provide as like RAS... Tendencies, which, again, should clearly be in the register of of members' interests. You know, the the idea that you just get to put your hands up after this is covered in the newspapers and say, here's all the things I've done wrong, significant errors and omissions, Mm -hmm. here's a bunch of other things that the media hasn't even found out about yet, I'm I'm putting my hands up now, and then get to walk away from it, I I don't think it's. You shouldn't be able to breach the ethics legislation in that way and simply walk away from it with no consequences. Otherwise, um, well, it's entirely meaningless.
2: All right, we're not human, though, aren't we?
8: We are. We're not all wheelers and dealers in property, buying mm. it at a low price, slipping it to the council a few months later, having contracts with the council for social housing, and at the same time voting, for example, against people before profits rent reduction bill on the final day of the doll of before the summer break without having these interests publicly declared. There is a reason that we're meant to know what interests uh, TD may be influenced by when they're voting in the Nadal, um, and he, he clearly breached that.
2: Okay, and a statement uh, to the Irish Times, he said he, he takes this... His role and his responsibilities as a TD very seriously and fully appreciates the seriousness of his mistakes. He said, I I sincerely regret that my omissions and errors could be seen as my deflection or disregard of my responsibilities as a public representative and I take full responsibility and I apologise unreservedly to my constituents, colleagues in government, to the Dáil and to SIPO, the Standards and Public Office Commission, for these errors and omissions. I, I, I take it from what you said, you're not accepting it as apology. So what do you want to happen next?
8: Well, I don't think it's really tenable that he can continue as a minister having admitted to just multiple, multiple repeated breaches over years of the ethics legislation. In, in the best case scenario for him, his version of events is that he was deeply incompetent and failed to accurately fill out forms year after year. The forms are not... Complicated. For example, a key part of his defence is the idea that he thought he only had to declare property if he owned it on the final day of the year, on the 31st of December. However, I looked at the forms this morning. Every single page of the form says an interest at any time during the appropriate period, i.e., 1st of January to the 31st of December, 2021. So that's the best case scenario is that he's deeply incompetent. The worst case scenario is worse than that. So I, I don't really see, I mean, Obviously, it's a question for Micheál Martin. It's a question for Leo Varadkar as to whether he still thinks he's a a class actor, I think was the word Leo Varadkar used. It's a question for the Green Party who haven't commented on that. But if, if they think it's appropriate to have a Minister of State who is so... Vagrantly and repeatedly in breach of the ethics legislation.
2: OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. People Before Profit, spokesperson on employment rights, Paul Murphy TD.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, uh, I
2: suppose uh, a lot of us know uh, that when somebody has a, a mental health problem, you feel helpless. It can become a crisis very quickly, and if a child has a a mental health problem, it really is heartbreaking, apart from the worry and the concern uh, about how to get treatment for them. But I suppose that's what CAMS is there for. That's uh, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. Having said that... It's amazing to see the amount of children who have been turned away from CAMS looking for help. The Irish Independent reported yesterday more than 7,600 children referred by GPs to CAMS last year were turned away because they didn't meet the strict criteria for eligibility. In the first four months of this year, 3,003 children and adolescents were deemed not suitable for the service. Uh, The figures have been released by the HSE to Sinn Féin's Mark Ward, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Um, What do you know uh, about the criteria um, that would see children being refused this service?
9: So there's, a, there's a number of criteria set out by the HSE for CAMs in, re- in relation to children being refused to service. So they're saying, so I went through the the, 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 the terms and the terms of reference for CAMs. So those with intellectual disabilities, they're saying that, that the needs are best met uh, through the HSE social care and disability services. Okay, so that's that's one. Those who present with developmental disorder, they're saying their needs are better served with the HSE primary care services rather than than CAMs. And those. Which which is quite startling. Those who have a diagnosis of autism, and and it is another reason why they're being refused. Now, children with autism can also have a mental health um issue, mental health problems as well. And that was that was noticed on there. That was brought up directly with Paul Reid at the at the the, the 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 committee meeting, I raised him with myself. And, and he did concede the fact that children with autism can also have a mental health um, mental health problems as well. Children are falling through the cracks in these criteria. This this criteria needs to be needs to be tightened up, um, Michael. And it's mm. just not good enough.
2: Okay. Uh, and are the services available for them elsewhere when they're told there's a service that would be more suitable to them?
9: So just an example, say the primary when they, when they, they say yeah. children should yeah. get primary care. So at the moment, there's 11,000 children waiting for primary care psychology right across the state Uh, there's over four thousand of these children who are waiting for over a year so they're not getting the care that they need when they need it and if children get the care at an early stage they're less likely to need the more acute services that are offered by cams and other services so early intervention is key all
2: right Uh, and when children do get services from cams uh, quite often that's limited isn't it
9: well, the other side of stuff, it's, it's, it's like an old-fashioned three-card trick. Children are being moved from list to list without actually getting the service that they need. So even if the children are accepted into comms, which at the moment is down to 62% of all referrals are only accepted. So 28 percent of all children who, who are referred into camps by a medical expert are refused treatment. But them 62%, if they are looking enough to deemed appropriate to get a service of camps, they're put on a waiting list. And the waiting list at the moment is over four thousand. It's the highest I've seen it. Um, and some children, there's mm. four hundred, and not children waiting for over a year for an appointment. And in that year, then problems could have went from moderate to severe to acute if you don't get the if you don't get the help that you need. Mm.
2: And that is the problem, isn't it? That
9: absolutely, is the problem.
2: Mm. Yeah, because the care uh, that is given to somebody with a, a mental health problem really works and s- stops it from worsening.
9: Every. Every expert, every medical expert, every witness that we would have at the, at, the, at the Mental Health Committee have all been in agreement that early intervention is key. And early intervention is key in a, a whole spectrum of things, but it's, it's particularly noticeable for, for, for children with mental health. If they get the care they need, where and when they need it, at an early stage, as I said, they are less likely to need more acute services as, as, they, as they get older.
2: Is there a particular problem in this country... Uh, At the moment, uh, was there always so many mental health problems? Do you think?
9: Well, there seems to be an increase in the amount of referrals into CAMS over the last number of years. So, for example, in 2019, there was 18,000, just over 18,000 referrals into CAMS. That's increased to 23,000 in 2021. Again, this is just CAMS. So, if the children had uh, got the early intervention. At an earlier stage, they're less likely to be referred into CAMHS, which is more moderate to severe mental health problems.
2: Okay. Uh, if you go back, I I, I don't know when CAMHS was established, uh, but if you go back 20 years, uh, what, what, what did uh, young people do then or what did their parents do then if they had concerns about them?
9: Uh, You're going back before before my time. I know, to, but I'm uh, just
2: I'm just wondering if it's a new no. phenomenon, Mark. I'm not trying to catch I mean, you I don't, out. I mean,
9: no, absolutely not. Yeah, and mm. I don't think it's actually. I don't think it's a new phenomenon. Hmm. What, what what I do think is that that over the last, say, 20 years, which you, you've mentioned, hmm. that hmm. people are more open to talk about mental health. The stigma has been lessened around mental health.
2: Problems, right. Okay.
9: Um, yeah. And and. and what used to happen was in the dark old days, when someone had a mental health problem, sometimes they were institutionalised and sent away, which is which is not good for anybody. Yeah. I believe that we've moved to a more human rights approach when it comes to dealing with people that have mental health problems, and and that's that's welcome. But the it's welcome to move to that approach, but we have to have the service in place that's going to meet that demand.
2: Okay, um, when you talk about this increase, I think you said about five thousand. Uh, more people in recent years, gone from 18,000 to 23,000 referrals. Yeah. Uh, has that anything to do with COVID?
9: I'd say it might have because we, at, the, at the Mental Health Committee, we, we've heard that a lot of children, um, they, they, they lost the structures in their life, so they would have lost, say, their school, their sports, their friends, and, and that would have had an impact on a lot of, a lot of children's uh, mental health. But again, CAMHS is for more people with moderate to severe mental health problems. So, if the children had they got the early intervention, if they are able to get the primary care psychology, if they are able to get the the, the counselling at an earlier stage, they may not need of the services in camps.
2: Hmm. Uh, and severe um, really can be severe. Lives are at risk, aren't they?
9: Absolutely. And and like the the, the for example, eating disorders. Um, in, in, they deal with eating disorders in camps, and that's one of one of the. The, the areas of mental health that can be really really fatal it, it, it can be critical and, the, and people and children need to get that help they need very very early on um, and that they need to have be able to access a service that's going to meet their, their needs
2: what role do you think the internet has in, in all of this i, I think it has a, a role in eating disorders uh it certainly was uh claimed by that facebook whistleblower that uh people were being directed uh, to inappropriate sites uh if uh they had an interest in diet or weight uh, suddenly they'd be looking at something to do uh, with uh, anorexia or bulimia or whatever encouraging uh, and I, I think the same can be said uh, about cutting a, a, and other things that young people uh, seem to be doing in greater numbers these days
9: well the internet has a role to play in a positive way and also in a negative way and, and i think parents just need to be kind of mindful of what what their children are accessing on and part part of myself what they're accessing on the internet, uh, because there's some of these sites that will direct children into, into into places that are not appropriate for children to be looking at.
2: We've heard from parents uh, who've been at uh, the end of uh, their tether, uh, appealing for a help to save uh, their children's lives. Uh, is it uh, as negligent, let's say, uh, elsewhere as it is in this country?
9: So. There is negligence there, so I was only talking about this during the week. So, for example, the HSE have spent 38 million on clinical training, uh, clinical psychologists over the last five years. Part of the deal with the training the clinical psychologists is that they, if they're offered a job at HSE, that they work directly for the HSE. Over the last five years, despite the 38 million investment, not one of these clinical psychologists, when they became qualified, have been offered a position with the HSE. Now, that, to me, is pure and utter negligence. Um, We're crying out for psychologists right across the state, including in camps, in primary care psychology, as I said, there's 11,000 children waiting. So that, to me, is utter incompetence and needs to be addressed as a matter of urgency.
2: What about policies um, such as alcohol and drugs uh, and uh, deciding to see people if uh, they're in a state of stress, uh, if uh, they're under the influence of something?
9: So I've worked my, my background, I would have worked in frontline addiction services for a number of years, Mike. Uh, so I would have seen, I would have dealt in low threshold facilities that would have dealt with people that maybe came coming into the organisation when they are affected and they are influenced by whatever they're to take, whether it be the alcohol or drugs, whatever it might be. To me, the human rights approach that you can you can help somebody even in that state and you keep chipping away and that person may come back at another day, another time, when they're not as uh, influenced on their their substances and are are more likely to accept the help that might be given to them. So I I don't believe in refusing people just quite blank, but you should be able to build up that relationship with people and and, and make it a safe place for people to come in to to access help that they need.
2: Okay. Uh, And even if uh, you're deemed suitable, if you meet the criteria, there's a, a waiting list, obviously, to get seen. We're hearing this morning... Uh, Over 500 children waiting over a year uh, to access services.
9: And this has been ongoing. So I I think there's over 4,100 children waiting for an appointment for cancer. There's 500 children waiting for over a year. That's not good enough. As I said earlier, early intervention is key. If that child that is waiting for over a year gets that appointment as quickly as possible, with a time a year later, that problem could have intensified and they could be in a a, a lot more uh, difficult place.
2: Mm. Is it a question of money, a question of funding? The mental health services have always been described as uh, the Cinderella of health services. Uh, But when we're talking about a a matter of life and death, uh, it seems a very odd question to be asking. Is it because uh, we're not spending money that lives are at risk?
9: We're not spending enough money, but we're also not spending it in in the right place. So we, what we need to do is make sure that the resources are put into places that that is needed. So care should be based on, on needs. It shouldn't be based on where you live. So, for example, and I went through some of the figures there this morning, if you go through across the state for camps, some camps areas are operating a lot better than others. So, for example, in the northern north inner city, only 48% of all referrals are accepted. But if you if you go out to... Donegal or Sligo or Leitrim, 73% of all referrals are accepted. That's a big discrepancy. And one of the the very first CAMS, the number one CAMS operational guideline states, and I I was looking at it this morning, Mm. is to provide a consistency in service delivery of CAMS throughout the country. This is not happening. And we need to see why. So if something is working in Donegal and Leitrim, go and have a look and see what's working and replicate that. It's not rocket science.
2: Yeah. A geographical lottery,
9: Mark.
5: The lottery,
2: yeah. yeah, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for okay, joining Michael. us. Much appreciated. That's okay. uh, Sinn Fein's spokesperson on mental health, Mark Ward. Now some comments. Uh, an email from Jim Conroy who says, "My wife had a, a fall yesterday. She hurt her back, and I rang the hospital in Navan, and they said to bring her in." We were met at the door of the A&E with a wheelchair. She was seen within 15 minutes and taken to the injury section for examination and x-ray. I had her in the car driving home in less than two hours. All the staff were very helpful with high levels of empathy. We live in screen 15 minutes from the hospital on the M3. This is an excellent service and is of huge value value to people like us who live in the surrounding hinterland. Thanks uh, for that, Jim. Uh, Another comment uh, from Facebook from John who says keep digging Michael you're getting closer (laughs) I don't know you have more confidence than me Jim or John Uh, uh, somebody else uh, then Sean in Kells uh, thanks for your call Sean he says I have an awful feeling that we're going through the motions here and at the end of it all the emergency department is closing in Navin. He says, I may be wrong, but I have a feeling. I think I think you're right. I think the, 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 the question is how it's going to close. Uh, I see somebody uh, in uh, the text messages saying that, a WhatsApp message from somebody saying, it, it's uh, that's what the review is about. It's a question of how to close it. Um, Paddy Duffy says, what is the biggest fears of all governments? Uh, he answers that question saying, it's a, a collapse. I'm getting the feeling that you're getting very close to the bone there when uh, you put in that FO so I um, keep it up. Um, <laughs> you'll be there after this government, Paddy says. Uh, Margaret and Navin says, Michael, we're being governed by dictators, not a government where the rich can access private hospitals and the less off can die on the streets. I'm so angry with this so-called government, says Margaret. Thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM.
2: 30 countries make up uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO. Uh, it may soon become 32, but Ireland is not a, a member of NATO, and there's no hope of us joining NATO. Uh, But we have uh, been spending millions on NATO over the course of the last decade. 2.3 million euro, according to the Irish Times yesterday. Jim Roach, Pierrot with uh, the Irish anti-war movement is on the line. Good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Are you surprised by that?
10: Morning, Michael. Uh, I am absolutely gobsmacked, uh, utterly shocked. I think this is bonkers why on earth... Is a neutral country like Ireland contributing money to NATO? I mean, I have the article in front of me here. No, no. One of the one of the contributions includes uh, four hundred and seven thousand three hundred and twenty-eight euros to the renovation of NATO office spaces. Mm. I mean, why on earth is Ireland doing this? What what have we got to do with NATO? And uh, you no, know, I think the first point to make is it's money that could have been spent on on socially useful projects here in Ireland It could have been spent on foreign aid helping refugees uh, instead of uh, on NATO which uh, as we know is not a force for peace in the world mm. it's a war alliance
2: it's a military alliance uh, we're, paying yeah. their, we're paying their phone bills or some of their phone bills 66,000 we spent on phone bills for this military alliance NATO
10: I know it's it's absolutely absolutely gobsmacking and fair play to the Irish Times for revealing it It's it's good to see a bit of investigative journalism going on at last Uh, But I'd like to say a bit more about NATO. I mean, let's be very clear about it. It's a vehicle particularly for the U.S.-led use of force and military bases on all continents. It's an organization that completely bypasses the U.N. and systems of international law. It accelerates militarization around the world and escalates arms expenditure. And we're doing this at a time when the world faces such, you know, Critical issues of, of uh, if you like, world, world hunger and the, say, the the climate change uh, crisis. Uh, N- NATO countries make up seventy five percent of global military expenditure, uh, and of course it's designed really since the the, 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 the say the fall of the Sov- of Soviet Union in that mm. post fall period. It's designed to advance the strategic and resource interests of the main countries that dominated uh, the U.S., Britain, France, Germany, etc. Uh, It has relentlessly expanded since then um, and has provoked Russia. Uh, And, of course, part of the ploy was to make sure that Russia would never be uh, a dominant world power again. It has been overtly aggressive, um, starting with Serbia in 1999 uh then uh, Afghanistan which was a uh, 20 years absolute disaster which we um, we've just passed the uh the one year anniversary now of, mm. of uh, if you like the, uh, it, that disaster and then Libya and of course Iraq even though uh, mm. Iraq was officially a nato um uh, war, uh, it, uh, so many of the NATO countries were involved, particularly the US, and led by the US and Britain. Okay. So it's gone completely global in terms of dominating, dominating the world, uh, as I've said, cr- creating this uh, awful militarization when we should be working for peace in the world and that's why I question why on earth okay. is the Irish government supporting this organisation?
2: Right, well, we're not just uh, helping to buy filing cabinets or office desks or pay for phone calls um, do you know what the battlefield information collection and, and exploitation systems is uh, apparently uh, 1.06 million euro of Irish money has gone towards that
10: I have no idea. Um, uh, I see it up here. I, I, I'll, be, I'll be, we'll be looking into it yeah. in 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 the coming days. I have no idea, but that's that's really uh, worrisome as well. It's one of the ones I've I've read it up here because when you see battlefield, mm-hmm. that that does imply uh, certainly that this is not like. Uh, uh, a, a peaceful. Uh, it could be clearing also.
2: up landmines and that sort of thing.
10: Yeah. So mm-hmm. in a way I mean I I think there needs to be a public inquiry into this. And certainly hopefully it'll, it'll be raised in the doll once mm. uh once the doll reconvenes. But this is absolutely what, shocking. Well
2: what's the arrangement? I, I mean have no idea. I Do mean, we just do we just I, give I, money to armies like
10: I, I I have no idea. I'm absolutely gobsmacked mm. by it. And maybe some Someone more involved with the Irish Army would would be able to uh, right. advise, but uh, I think it's probably been confused by the whole um, the Partnership for Peace thing, the PFP program, which Ireland was involved in. And again, we we expressed concern about that and we're against it. It had uh, Irish soldiers and, and guards, I think, uh, out in Afghanistan as part of this Partnership for Peace, but it was run by run by NATO. So we, we always uh, called it out uh, as, a, as a dangerous uh, activity for Ireland to be involved in, and we said that those people should be brought home. Mm. So it probably has come from that, you see. So
2: this is the cost of training Irish Defence Force members?
10: Uh, the, the battlefield
2: information? That 2.3 million
10: uh well no the, the 2.3 million is a combination of things and it, the article mm. goes through uh, a number of i i, I quoted the 400,000 there which is uh, paid paid for um, terms of renovations of of uh, mm. NATO's NATO's office. so it's a mixture of things mm. right it's it's not just about training uh Training personnel. Oh, well, I know,
2: but when, when we pay for the office space or the phones or whatever it is, uh, it, it, is it, uh, it in return for NATO training of Irish Defence Force members? I wonder.
10: It may be. Mm. It may be, Michael. I mm. don't know. I'm baffled by the whole thing, and we we need to hear more about it. As I said, I, I think there is need for uh, a public inquiry into this because this is public Irish taxpayers' money that could be used. To, you know, in, in this socially meaningful way for education, housing, health, etc. So it, it is quite shocking that it's been misused
2: in this way I mean, for, all the, for all the reasons. But it's odd. It's it's not the biggest amount of money by government standards uh, but it's, it's a, not, a lot of money it's and it's it, why it's, is, it. yeah, and it's the
10: 2.3 million could still uh, help, help a lot of people who are in distress.
2: Okay. Jim, I'm out of time. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us as always. Jim Roach P.R.O. with the Irish Anti-War Movement brings our programme to its conclusion this week. God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on lmfm good morning bye-bye
1: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie lmfm podcasts with cnc carpets we bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237
8: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
6: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.